If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Wanted to talk a bit more about uh, the virus and uh, our response to this virus in terms of, you know, what what we're learning about it, uh, some of the concerns about how long this whole situation might last, and, you know, the situation here in Calgary would appear, at least from from the the early numbers in Alberta, that there's many more cases in Calgary than, say, in Edmonton, but... Do, do we know enough at this point to say definitively that that's the case? Uh, joining us to talk more about uh, all of this, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Dr. Craig Jenny is a Canada Research Chair in Imaging Approaches Towards Studying Infection, Assistant Professor of the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases, also with the Department of Critical Care Medicine uh, at the uh, University of Calgary. Dr. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, hi. Uh, it's interesting because I think, you know, on, on a per capita basis, Alberta's doing relatively well at this point when it comes to testing. But at the same time, do we have enough data to really get an accurate picture of what the situation in Calgary, what the situation in Alberta is? Yeah, I think we have enough data. The problem with trying to get any idea of statistics is that with really small numbers, they just don't pan out. Um, when we're talking about caseloads as small as we're looking at, these may represent only one or two uh, levels of community transmission. So the, the number of infected people in Alberta compared to our whole population is tiny. And as a result, early in these sort of outbreaks, the numbers can be quite skewed. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, Calgary does have more international flights, and that, that might explain some of the discrepancy between, say, Calgary and Edmonton. Yeah. But, you know, as, as you say, we might not really have a clear picture of what's happening in, in either city at this point. No, that, I think that's it. As this unfortunately progresses we'll get a much better idea and as you pointed out with with more international flights there's a little bit more seeding uh, of infected people in the community which means uh, early numbers will probably be looking a little higher in calgary but that may not represent uh, actual distribution as this uh, begins to pick up speed yeah well and that's the thing picking up speed i mean you know the the total numbers are obviously one part of the story but you know those those new cases each day and and we're going to continue to see more cases but if the new cases announced today are more than the new cases announced yesterday and so on and so on right that's that's indicative of a of a problem that's getting worse so what what are we ideally hoping to see not just today or tomorrow but in in the coming weeks here yeah, I mean, over the coming weeks, we're going to want to see those those new cases per day begin to plateau or flatten out, um, suggesting that that the, the expansion of infection is not increasing, that it's just going from one person to another, uh, and not exponentially growing. On average, we know that one infected person will tend to infect a little bit more than two other people. So that's where we get this exponential growth from. 
Right, and that exponential growth left unchecked, I mean, it, it can, can get to some bad places. There's obviously this Imperial College report now that's that's been released that appears to have, have really shaped the uh, change in the U.S. response, the U.K. response, uh, that looks at the U.S. and, and a do-nothing, just deal with its scenario. You, you've got, you know, potentially three or four million people dying as, as a result of this in a healthcare system that's totally, uh, totally overloaded. On the other hand, they say that, you know, just a complete and total shutdown can really be effective, but that's got a considerable economic cost. So, you know, we're trying to find that that, that ideal medium, aren't we? Yeah, I, I think with these reports, what is impressive is actually how much of a drop in significant illness occurs, even with minor social distancing and minor restrictions. So although to get the optimal response, things had to get very locked down in, the, in these studies, even implementing basic self-quarantine, uh, if, you, if you're suspected of coming in contact, has a huge impact on the, on the end numbers of an outbreak. So we're trying to find that happy medium. We, we probably don't have to go as far as this report suggests, but every new measure we bring in actually has a very dramatic impact on the number of potential cases here in Canada. Yeah, that, that's, what do you make of this, this notion that we should act like we have it? I mean, is, is, that, is that good advice, or what, what kind of precautionary steps should we all be taking? Yeah, I think that is probably good advice. I think one of the, the problems getting a message across to the public is the measures we're bringing into play, the suggestions, are not based on the number you saw announced today, but on what could mm-hmm. be coming in the, in the next few days. We know that, for example, people can be infected and will be infected for a few days before they test positive. So the numbers we're seeing are likely underestimating the number of cases in the province in total. So we are building measures to respond to where those numbers are going to go. And if we can get them in early, which is something that Alberta in in particular, but Canada in general, has done an excellent job of compared to other jurisdictions, we actually see much less community spread here in Canada. We see a much lower case burden per per million people, suggesting that these early interventions have been very effective here in Canada. And we're doing, you know, better than the than most other countries in flattening this curve. Yeah. And again, we still have early numbers, but I mean, we're, we're at, I think, 97 cases, so almost 100, and, and I believe only five hospitalizations. So maybe that speaks to having a younger population. Maybe it's a, statist- a statistical quirk at this point, but there's some encouragement there, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen big differences in the number of fatalities, depending on which country we look at. So, for example, in South Korea, there were very few deaths overall, and that's because it was younger people getting it, and they had brought in isolation procedures to protect the older populations, which is exactly what Canada has done. These self-isolations are going to protect our most susceptible populations. Unfortunately, the younger people are still out and about and, and per, yeah. perhaps spreading the disease, but they bear the, the, the least burden of actual disease if they get infected. Yeah, I mean, it, I mentioned it earlier. I mean, it's quite a contrast. 81 total deaths in South Korea. They've announced 475 just in the last day in Italy. Yes. Like that, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, and I think that really does get into this this idea of the social distancing and, and self-isolation. And I think, unfortunately, things moved a little slower in Italy. The screening was not at the, at the same level as it is here in Canada or Alberta. And as a result, they, they were playing catch-up right from the beginning, whereas we we brought in measures before the cases were here. 
And by the way, I want to ask you, I mean, it appears still the person-to-person transmission is, is the primary means through which this, this is being transmitted, which is why we're doing all of this. But, you know, we are, are learning more about, you know, the potential for this virus to, to linger, even in the air for, for yeah. a bed or, or to linger on surfaces. I don't know what that represents in terms of transmission of this disease, but obviously that's, that's a part of this that we really need to understand, isn't it? Yeah, th- these are important um, advancements in our understanding of the disease. I think the question is still to, to be answered as to how much they contribute to the community level spread. It's definitely possible, and we can see that from research settings and, and even isolated hospital settings. But if this was a truly aerosolized or airborne virus, the numbers we see in the community just don't bear that out. So, so this does not behave like other classic viruses like measles. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little harder to catch. It doesn't mean that those me- transmission mechanisms are impossible, but they may not be the significant driver in the community. Yeah, that's encouraging. Um, so, so certainly, you know, we, we talk about testing, and, and South Korea is obviously an example of, of where that can be effective. There was this one town in Italy even where, as an experiment, they tested everybody, 3,300 people, and had remarkable success. So are, are we kind of, at this point, buying ourselves a little time to really try to get a, ahead of the curve on testing? Is, is that going to be a big focal point uh, in, in the coming months? Yeah, I mean, Alberta right now is in the top three or four jurisdictions around the world for, for testing per million people. So we really are being held up as an example on the international stage of how to do this. The more testing we do, the more cases we identify, the more, for example, self-isolation we can bring into play is going to slow this dramatically within the, our province and within Canada. And the real strategy here is if we can slow it long enough that, that a vaccine or an antiviral becomes available, well, then we can actually really taper this off in the coming months. So right now, is important to avoid people getting infected where there is no vaccine or treatment and if we can delay that so so people will still come in contact with the virus you know nine months to a year from now but if we have a treatment or a vaccine available we're going to really reduce the the disease burden not only on the hospitals but you know quality of life in the in the community as well yeah and obviously getting a vaccine is huge but i mean that that's probably realistically at least a year away maybe maybe treatments could could come down the pipe sooner but uh i guess that's the concern right i mean even if we take the right steps and we really slow this as we start to lift restrictions we got to be careful because this in in the meantime could still you know it, it could bounce back or we could see we could see waves of this yeah we've seen that in the past with other infections the, the hope right now is to to weather this immediate spike where the the risk of picking it up in the community is quite high if we can get that case burden down a little bit, then as we ease off restrictions, there will still be new infections, but there won't be as many. And realistically, you know, clinical trials have started on the vaccine. You're right, it's probably a year away, but we've got uh, a number of candidates that have gone into phase one clinical trial as of this week. So the, we are moving the ball forward on that, and, and we're optimistic that we will have, within a reasonable time frame, a, a, a workable vaccine. Yeah, and, and, and further to that, I mean, obviously, there's, you know, when it comes to the flu, there's there's the ultimate goal of kind of a universal flu vaccine, and we're not there yet. And, you know, it can be kind of hit and miss some years with the flu, and some vaccines are more effective than others. But is this the kind of virus that lends itself to, to a specific and, and an effective vaccine? It's a tough call because this family of virus, for example, the coronavirus, there there are a number of other ones other than this COVID-19 that that humans get infected with, and they cause the common cold. And and just the fact that we do not have an effective vaccine for the common cold uh, suggests how hard it is to to nail this particular virus down. Uh, The hope right now is to be able to treat this this more aggressive one. And 
the, the goal of a vaccine is to prevent infection, but we know even in the years where the flu vaccine is a bad match, we still reduce disease burden. So yeah. if you're vaccinated with a poor match, you still have almost a tenfold lower risk of going to hospital than if you're not vaccinated at all. So, so there's still protection to be offered, even if we can't block the infection entirely. Right. So even if, if it is still with us, uh, you know, the combination of, of a vaccine, treatments and, and some natural immunity, you know, that, that we, don't have to, we don't have to keep living like we are at the moment. No, the, the goal would be to bring this back into the, the range of, of, a, of a seasonal influenza or the flu. You know, it, it's still not good. We still, unfortunately, lose Canadians every year to the flu. But the numbers mm-hmm. are small enough that we can, you know, go about our daily lives uh, with, with a vaccine in place and just standard hand washing and really mitigate disease. So if the therapies that are in development can reduce this novel coronavirus to the level of, of a seasonal flu, I think most people would probably be pretty happy with that. Yeah, I'd say so. All right, well, we'll see uh, what comes uh, our way in the, uh, the coming days and weeks here. Dr. Jenny, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Anytime. We appreciate your insight. Take care, Rob. Uh, you as well. Uh, Dr. Craig Jenny, Canada Research Chair in Imaging Approaches Towards Studying Infection, Assistant Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Disease, also the Department of Critical Care Medicine uh, at the University of Calgary. And so, yeah, I mean, he really puts things in, in perspective, doesn't he? So some great insight, some great points about where we're at, what we're trying to do, and what we know about this virus, right? The challenges it presents, but the, those kind of avenues of attack. I wanted to get to the, uh, the the impact of all of this financially on, on Canadians, and we heard earlier the uh, measures announced by the federal government, uh, and they say this is just, you know, the start, right? That, that it, it's not everything the federal government's going to do, as, as big as it is. We'll find out a bit more from the Alberta government today about uh, what, what they plan on doing. We heard the announcement as well today that the big banks are, are taking some steps uh, to try to help Canadians get through this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it just speaks to the urgency of the situation. And, you know, we're going to be hearing more and more in coming days of people who are not, not able to end, make ends meet or having challenges making ends meet. People who are getting uh, laid off from their jobs. You know, people who are facing some, some economic uncertainty, dipping into their savings. And what do we need to do to help them get through this? And what steps can people take as well uh, just to try to manage with all of this? Anyway, to that end, I uh, wanted to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, talk more about this. It's uh, Scott Hanna, President and CEO of the Credit Counseling Society. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is really unprecedented, I mean, in, in, in so many ways. Uh, just, just your overall thoughts kind of on the, on the situation that uh, a lot of Canadians are facing already and are likely to face in the coming days and weeks. Look back on when Canada went into a bit of a mini recession, 2008, 2009, and and there was similar panic among consumers in terms of what's going to happen next. Is there going to be an economic collapse? And you know, many people guaranteed their losses in the equity markets by cashing out. Looked at mm-hmm. the short term versus the long term implications, and so there's a lesson. There's lessons to be learned from this, and you know, already we're seeing our federal government, uh, provincial governments, looking to provide measures so that we keep businesses operational, people working and being paid. Uh, the news today from the big six banks that um, they will look to allow uh, mortgage holders uh, who've been impacted by COVID-19 to to uh, delay up to six months worth of mortgage payments is a very encouraging step. And I suspect that 
other credit grantors, credit card companies are going to look at similar measures because the last thing creditors want to do is guarantee themselves a loss. And I look back in you know, 2000, 2008, 2009, when we saw even small creditors, credit unions are saying, you know, we don't want to become homeowners. We want to help our customers right. get through this difficult period of time and work close. So one key aspect of this is communication. And so if Albertans are, are in the situation where they've been given notice of they're going to be laid off or have a strong suspicion they will be, getting on top of this, in advance of this, communicating with our creditors, uh, here's my situation as I know it today, here's what I can do, here's what I can't do um, over the next months. And because none of us really understand how long it's going to take until the curb is flattened out in terms of new cases occurring, um, we're going to have to take this on a case-by-case basis. But while we're going through this, in addition, it's critical for all Canadians to look at establishing an emergency budget, which is our bare necessities. What do we need to get by over the next two to three months? Mm-hmm. And what else can we defer or delay until the time period? It may create some hardship, so perhaps for some families who have, they're a two-car family, it may mean we're taking one car off the road to, to reduce the insurance premiums and the gas costs. We're looking at different measures uh, so that we can get through this. And you know, speaking of communication, it's so critical for those of us with families that we have those conversations to reduce the fear amongst our, our family, our kids, because kids will always fear the worst unless you tell them otherwise. So it's important yeah. that we take a couple of deep breaths first as we go down this path. When it comes to, to reaching out to creditors, and you know, as you, you pointed out in your press release today, those can be uncomfortable calls to make, uncomfortable conversations to have, and, and just you know, the idea of, of calling your bank or calling your creditors and saying, uh, I'm worried, or you know, I'm in trouble, or, or can you help me out? You know, it's, it's not the kind of, of things people want to have to say, things that people want to have to do, right? So how, how do you advise people to, to kind of get past that? It's good to have an action plan first in terms of what information you want to communicate to your creditors. So as opposed to just picking up the phone blindly and saying, I've been impacted by this. Put some thought into it first. Incepted by this, what does my income look like? Have I applied for unemployment insurance benefits? Do I have some cash reserves? Uh, look at your merge better idea as to what you can do versus can't do first. And then outline on paper or on your, on your smartphone the steps that you can do with your creditor. And it may be as simple as, I'm unable to make a payment for the next one or two months. However, I'm going to commit to remaining in contact with you for the next two months, every two weeks. You know that I'm still concerned about my financial obligations, or perhaps if you're in a position to offer a reduced payment so that at least you're you're getting, making some payments towards your debt. So have that action plan in advance of making that call to your creditors. But I also want to to inform your listening audience the fact that um, while they're concerned about their financial affairs, all of the major financial institutions have been huddling in terms of how do we reach out to our client base, what our customer base, how can we help them during this time period? So they all have help departments. And keep in mind that if you've been a good customer for years and years and years, always uh, handle your affairs responsibly, 
They want to maintain you as a, as a valuable customer. You're just going through uh, circumstances beyond your control right now. So that's the view and perspective that we're hearing from the national credit granting, um, national credit granters across Canada. So that should give your listening audience some comfort that um, they recognize that they have to treat this differently so that we don't create mass panic and people give up. Yeah, and, and and so that's encouraging, as you say, some of the announcements we've heard, and, and the one from the big banks today in particular, I, that, that's certainly going to be helpful in this idea, but, you know, let's work through this. Uh, so so where can, you know, your groups like yours fill the void? And, and people can go to nomoredebts.org and, and find out more about some of the assistance you offer, and there, there are other nonprofits that do similar work, but you know, what, what kind of void or, or bridge can you be to just kind of help people know where to turn and, and to provide that kind of advice? We're an organization that provides objective information and can help eliminate or reduce the fear factor that many consumers who've never found themselves in this position before saying, what do I do? I've always paid my bills in terms of providing them guidance, helping them establish uh, an action plan, giving them some resource to use when they're reaching out to their creditors. Uh, In some cases, if their circumstances are somewhat better known that they know they're going to have reduced income for an extended period of time, looking at alternate uh, repayment solutions as well. So, and again, they can access that help at no cost and it's confidential. So, you know, when we speak with consumers every day, and last year we spoke with 70,000 of them, um, you know, there's similarities. People are concerned. They're not sure what to do. Um, and because they're a little concerned, they're not at the best, in their best shape in terms of mentally. So we can be that organization, as can other uh, accredited nonprofit credit counseling agencies uh, like Money Mentors in Alberta that can provide that objective guidance and help and help prepare consumers when they have those conversations with the creditors. All right. Much more is mentioned. Nomoredebts.org. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Take care. Bye for now. All right. That is uh, Scott Hanna. He is president and CEO of the Credit Counseling Society. They are a nonprofit organization uh, dedicated to helping consumers manage their money and their debts. So they have a toll-free number. Uh, you can call. You can even set up a, an appointment to talk to somebody. They, they've got financial counselors. You know, just, just to work through, if you're confused or, or you have questions about, well, you know, what, what should I do first? Or where, where do I turn? What kind of steps can I take? They're, they're there to walk you through that. Uh, so they, they do a lot of important work. But as he says, right, I mean, um, you know, it's best to contact your creditors as soon as possible. And, and certainly the indication that at this point is that there's a willingness to work with people. Um, and, and as he says, too, I mean, you know, have that, that emergency budget and stick to it. I mean, for right now, for people, you know, a lot of those extra expenses, I mean, it speaks to the economic impact this is going to have. But, you know, the idea of people aren't going out, uh, spending money on, on trips or you know, just going out for the night or all that kind of stuff. That's all kind of on hold from now. So maybe that will make it a little easier for people to, to stick to emergency budgets or if you're able to work from home or you, maybe you and your spouse are working from home. As he says, you can just decide, let's take one vehicle off the road. So let's cancel the insurance on that. Those kinds of steps can, can go a long way. Obviously, we're in the midst of, of dealing with this this pandemic and taking steps right now to, to try to get a handle on this and provide emergency measures to, to help Canadians and help the economy get through this. Right, that that is priority number one right now, and and probably then and understanding this virus and what to do about it, it's probably going to mean some some cooperation with China, uh, sharing of data, uh, etc. But we we can't forget 
the fact that not only did this originate in China, and it's not necessarily to blame China for that, but certainly it's fair to blame the Chinese government for how they responded initially, the, the denial that this was even a thing, the silencing of the whistleblowers, the downplaying uh, of the seriousness of it or how contagious it was. You know, even in early January, telling the World Health Organization that there didn't appear to be evidence of, of human to human transmission. Um, so eventually and, and very quickly, I think the Chinese realized that they were dealing with a serious situation. But if they had acted sooner, you know, things might have been a different story. Now, there's a lot of debate in Washington, D.C. today, which seems like kind of a pointless conversation about whether to now call this the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus. I mean, we got enough names for it already. And maybe that's a bit of a deflection at some level, but at the same time, sure, I mean, it's a recognition of, you know, the Chinese uh, culpability in all of this. And, and how do we hold them accountable? And when do we have that conversation? Well, uh, joining us uh, for some further thoughts uh, on all of this, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Marcus Kolga, is a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute, their Center of Advancing Canadian Interest Abroad. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you wrote a really interesting piece on this, and uh, people can find that uh, at mcleans.ca. But where does where does this fit into to our current priorities, and you know what it is we're, we're trying to deal with at the moment? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the, the priority right now is clearly um, trying to you know flatten the curve, as they're saying, and just get through this at this point. Mm -hmm. um, that is the priority. But you know, I think while we're working on that. We cannot lose sight of the fact that, you know, it's really the, the Chinese government, not the Chinese people, but the Chinese government, through their own uh, negligence and mishandling of this crisis back in, you know, starting in November and December, um, it's really because of that that this virus has been allowed to explode into the pandemic that it is today. And I think we need to sort of ask ourselves, um, how do we, are we going to hold them accountable? Are, should there be any consequences for this? Because I believe that if we don't stand up, uh, eventually, not, maybe not now, maybe not next month, maybe it's in the fall, but if we don't stand up along with our allies and say, you know, this, is, this sort of behavior is not okay, um, you know, it just enables this sort of, this, uh, a continuation of this and a pattern of this sort of behavior down the road. And it doesn't necessarily have to even uh, be within, uh, you know, the, the realm of, of health and these sorts of crises in the future. But whether it's economic questions or anything else, you know, we've, we've had experience dealing with the Chinese regime with the two Michaels um, and various other issues. Um, we know that any sign of weakness they take advantage of. So eventually we're going to have to stand up and we really need to keep thinking about this as we try to fight through this uh, current crisis. Right. And as you say, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a lot in the here and now, but I guess it shouldn't be overlooked that, that as all of this is happening, certainly the Chinese government is doing what it can to try to change the narrative of this and, and you know, trying to put out conspiracy theories about, you know, this virus might have actually originated in the U.S. And, you know, yeah. the, the Chinese leadership, they're, they're the heroes in this story because of all the, the great steps they took to contain this. So they're, they're certainly, uh, you know, while we're dealing with this, they're certainly trying to shape their own narrative, aren't they? Well, sure, they're trying to deflect any responsibility for it. Um, and so they're trying to switch the narrative. I mean, we've seen, uh, uh, you know, you bring up the fact that there's some conspiracy theories about this being a, a U.S. virus. Um, these were stories that were actually, quite remarkably, uh, planted initially by the, by the Russians on 
on fringe uh, pro-Kremlin websites uh, back in around mid, early to mid-January. Um, narratives that stated that it's the, it was the U.S. Army that actually developed the, uh, the coronavirus and brought it to Wuhan and released it as, a, as some sort of a uh, test, uh, an offensive. And through those pro-Kremlin sites, Chinese media and the Chinese government more specifically picked up on it and, uh, and has been promoting this uh, through various different channels, including a Canadian uh, conspiracy website called Global Research, a very well-known one. Um, and so through those sorts of channels, they're, they're trying to, def- to deflect uh, from their own responsibility for it. They've even gone so far as to um, suggest that it might be a, it was a Japanese virus. So there's a, there's a meme going around uh, Chinese social media calling it the Japan virus. Um, so it's pretty much, I mean, this is a typical totalitarian um, tactic when it comes to trying to deflect is that they just try and throw anything out there in hopes that it sticks so that, uh, that, um, that the blame will be deflected away from them. Right, and it's certainly not helpful at the time being, and I suppose we can add that to the list of, of kind of what we need to hold them to account to. Um, but, yeah. I mean, in what form does that take? I mean, certainly you're, you're not arguing, I don't think anybody is, that, you know, we, we're going to go to war with China over this. No. But, but certainly, you know, we do need to, to hold them to account. What might that entail? Well, I mean, in the most extreme case, uh, you know, you do have uh, a lot of, we, we believe that there are a number of Chinese officials who have, assets in this country, you know, seizing assets is, is one extreme. Um, I'm not suggesting that we go there. But we do have uh, some, you know, pretty good tools, uh, sanction tools like the Nitsky sanctions, which can be used to target specific individual officials who we find who, you know, we don't obviously need to investigate this properly with our allies. But um, if we can find out individual officials, individual uh, organs on the municipal level in Wuhan, for example, that are responsible, were responsible, um, or negligent in, uh, in containing this, this virus, uh, you know, we can actually apply sanctions to them. Um, I think one of the most important ways that we can respond to, uh, respond to this is by diversifying our trade. Um, you know, let's, let's not focus, uh, so closely on China. There are a lot of other countries in the region, India, um, Vietnam, others that, um, that we can work more closely with. And, uh, by diversifying our trade, we're, you know, we won't be relying on the Chinese, uh, government so much or the, on Chinese trade so much. Uh, and, uh, through that, we, you know, the Chinese government won't be able to bully us the way that they have, um, in the past. So, I mean, there's several things that we can do, and this is something that I think that our government needs to really look at is, is its own China policy. And, it's, you know, while we're working through this crisis, uh, they have to think about that. Yeah, they do. And, and we're, we're going to have to have that conversation. I mean, is, is the unfortunate part of right now, though, that we kind of have to not necessarily trust the Chinese, um, and, and we should always be suspicious, I think, in, in dealing with the government, given given all wow. of this, but we, I mean, we do have to communicate with them. We do have to, to rely on them to some extent for you know, information about this virus and, and to study their response. That's, that's kind of the unfortunate short-term reality, isn't it? Well, I'm not so sure. I, I, I quite frankly, would trust very little data that I receive from the, yeah. the Chinese government or the Russian government or the Iranian government. You know, as we've seen from, you know, we've had this experience with Iran already. Um, you know, these totalitarian regimes, they, they don't deal in truths. 
um, they they don't they're not they they don't their um, interactions with with us are not based on values. Um, it's it's all sort of laissez-faire, and they their only interest is protecting themselves. So I'm not sure that we should be you know looking to China when it comes to solutions to this crisis. I think we can look at countries like Taiwan, who have really quite effectively and remarkably being able to avoid a widespread outbreak. Uh, you know, some of the measures they've taken are, are rather drastic, but let's, let's face it, I mean, they have some 50, at least less than 100 cases uh, for a population of, of 25 million people. Um, so we should be looking perhaps at countries like that uh, before we, we, we rely on Taiwan, for, or sorry, we, we rely on the, uh, the Chinese government for, for any help when it comes to overcoming this. Yeah, that's an important point, too. Uh, as mentioned, your piece, it's up at mclean's.ca, much more as well at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Marcus, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me on. All right. Yeah, you as well. Uh, so there you go. That's uh, Marcus Kolga. He's with the uh, McDonald Laurier Institute, senior fellow at their Center of Advancing Canadian Interest Abroad. He's a uh, digital communication strategist, a human rights activist, and an expert on, on foreign disinformation. So yeah, we're getting a lot of disinformation from, from the Chinese at, at the moment, unfortunately, just as we were uh, in late last year and in early this year. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.